0: Uh, Father, uh, by the Holy Spirit, uh, please glorify your name through the preaching of your word that Jesus might be magnified and treasured in each of our hearts, that he might be more and more uh, everything to us. Would you give to us a clarity and understanding and a conviction uh, within to be active and obedient hearers? Uh, would you convince us, Lord, of just how much it is that you love us? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our passage this morning is again about prayer, uh, continuing what, we, what Jesus started and what we looked at last Sunday. And in the text previous, one disciple, in witnessing Jesus pray, had asked him to teach himself and the other disciples to pray as well. For they had all... Uh, really been seen in Jesus, a pattern and a consistency in his own prayer life over several years, that as much as the miracles receive all the press, And Jesus' teaching brought in all the crowds. The disciples were recognizing more and more a direct link in their minds between Jesus' prayer life and his powerful ministry to the people. That they had seen in his deep intimacy with the Father a sense that somehow that relationship and that communion is really the source of everything else. And so they want to be a people of prayer. And Jesus gives to these disciples and to us the Lord's Prayer, the content of which is to pray like Jesus in that God is also our own Father as well, and that our prayer lives are an expression of an intimate relationship with Him. And by virtue of a realization of this mind-blowing truth, there's something about beholding God as our own father that makes his children desire what their father desires. That somehow God's kingdom is more important to us than our own. And that God's name and reputation and glory being recognized is more to us than our own names and reputations within this passing world. That we want his name to be hallowed. We want his kingdom to come. And it's at the same time that our daily confessed dependence upon our Father is also recognized for the daily bread we eat, the physical needs we have, for the spiritual needs we continue to require and the forgiveness of our sins and in our ability to forgive others as well. In protection from future sin against him, Jesus gives to us a framework for the material, the content of which his disciples ought to pray in the Lord's prayer, but he continues in this next passage because prayer is not merely about content and material alone. There's a certain manner and disposition and persistence and perseverance the how we pray, which can be just as important as what we pray. And here in the text before us, Jesus is motivating us to pray with this boldness, confidence, and persistence, and he does this by giving to us a couple of visuals. In a person who will not take no for an answer, and in a father who knows how to give good gifts to his child, we read in verse 5 and see the first visual. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Sometimes it is that we don't pray with any kind of persistence, Because we don't believe that praying consistently and constantly with much effort will actually and ultimately move the needle at all. I think deep, deep down, sometimes we believe that prayer doesn't really accomplish anything. And Jesus counteracts that with this ridiculous picture of an impudent man who will not take no for an answer. He has a desperation that steps over social boundaries and ignores manners and lays aside common decency, and then he gets exactly what he's asking for. And Jesus is telling his followers, ask, seek, knock again and again and again, and you will receive, find, and even have closed doors opened up. But first, look at this ridiculous visual of relentless requesting. We have a man here in a bind. A friend arrives at his house after a long journey, and he's not ready for it. In the first century, ancient Middle Eastern culture, hospitality was a reflection of the kind of person you were. And so if a friend were to come over, and especially after a journey, you have to provide that friend a meal, bread, something. Otherwise, you lose faith. Otherwise, you deserve shame. And this man, this host, has absolutely nothing. He doesn't even have the simplest food like bread. And there's no 7-Elevens or Safeways in the neighborhood. And so what does he do? He has his other friend banging on the door, waking him up, give me three loaves, I need it, and I need it in a bad way, and it is midnight. Now, this is during an era where people generally try to be in bed shortly after sundown. No one stays up until midnight like so many of us do. There was no internet, electricity, streaming, etc. This man is fast asleep, and he is already in that deep kind of sleep. You know, last week, we switched our three-year-old out of her crib and onto a bed, and and Piper, she theoretically liked the idea of a big girl bread until she actually had to sleep in it. And so she'd been waking up in the middle of the night multiple times, not used to it, she didn't really like it. I don't know if the crib's rails gave her some kind of security or whatnot, but Laura woke up each time to check in on her and help her to calm her down two or three nights uh, for a few days in a row, until she got used to it. I heard it was exhausting. Because through it all, I did not hear a thing any of those nights. I was in that deep kind of sleep. And you're going to have to make a little bit more noise than a whimpering child to to wake me up. But this neighbor is asking, seeking, and knocking in such a way that even the deepest sleepers can't ignore it. That even with this threefold rebuttal, don't bother me, the door is now shut, and my kids are in bed with me three points and then a conclusion therefore I cannot get up and give you anything this friend still refuses to relent on his request for bread and this persistent asking is so continuous that this man finally does get out of bed and does give him exactly what he wants he gets the bread he gets what he asked for he finds what he seeks That closed door has been opened, but the text is very clear that this sleepy man doesn't do this to help him. He doesn't even do this because he loves him at this point. This has nothing to do with their friendship or former friendship at that. It has instead everything to do with his impudence, his manner. Now, what does that word impudence mean? It's a term that actually signifies a disrespect for someone in inappropriate boldness, shamelessness, outrageous and even offensive, presumptuous behavior. The original word which is used here, one commentator finds 250 uses outside of the New Testament and in every single one of them, there is this negative connotation because there is this audacity and the constant asking, seeking and knocking that is the main reason why this annoyed friend gives into this man and delivers the bread that he wants. Now many of us would never ever do anything like this. To even ask for some, I don't even ask, that's just too embarrassing. And if we did somehow find the gall to seek and knock once, we would have turned away when there's no answer. We would have turned away when the friend says, don't bother me. And even for some of us who are bold, so bold to ask yet again, we would have walked back to our home after the second response, the door is now shut. But it does take a particular kind of impudence to keep on going. Do not bother me. Sorry, I'm going to. The door is now shut. I'm going to keep knocking until you open it. The kids are with me. We'll wake them up too. I cannot get up and give you anything. Oh, yes, 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 you can, and you will. You feel that impudence. This is an absurd picture of relentless requesting, and Jesus, I think, means to paint the scenario in all of its ridiculousness to teach us something about prayer. The neighbor who wakes up and gives up the bread doesn't even like the guy knocking on his door, and his desperation is ultimately for something trivial like bread, and so the relationship between the asker and the giver is not a good one. And his desires for something so inconsequential, and yet it is purely because of his manner. He gets what he so desires. Brothers and sisters, we have the giver of all good gifts, not an annoyed neighbor. James 1, calls him the father of lights and every good and perfect gift comes from above and comes from him. Jesus tells us that this God is our father. There is an intimate relationship between him and the ones who do believe. And we're not asking for three loaves of bread. We are asking for the Father's name to be hallowed and his kingdom to come. We're asking for the provision we need, our sins to be forgiven, for us to forgive others, for a desire in our hearts to not be steered into temptation because we don't want to sin anymore. These are not inconsequential things. And so this father of ours, this Bible tells us, he doesn't sleep. He does not slumber. Psalm 121 verse 4. He tells us he loves to hear and help his people in need. Psalm 34 verse 15. Our father does not tire of hearing from us. He has never bothered or annoyed, inconvenienced or reluctant. He is eager to listen to each and every single one of his children. And if this is the case, which it is, then perhaps his people could pray a little bit more boldly and confidently and not worry about manners and exhibit the desperation that steps over social boundaries to ask and to seek and to knock. There's a difference between the knocks of my kids on my office door and everyone else's. They bang on it and rattle the handle and say, Daddy, Daddy, are you in there? I'm sure some of you guys have seen that. Everyone else just politely taps, hello. (laughs) I I do think we often need to understand our relationship with God a little bit more than we do. There is an appropriate boldness that parallels impudence that should be characteristic of much of our prayer lives. But there can be in each of us uh, the sneaky suspicion that can overtake our hearts. That perhaps it is we don't pray with persistence because deep down underneath we don't actually believe that asking, seeking, and knocking this continuously and with this much effort is actually and ultimately going to move the needle at all. And Jesus takes this ridiculous visual of impudence and he ties it to a promise. The Son of God promises that the ones who do ask like this will be given and the ones who do seek like this will find and the ones who keep Knocking on doors which seem to be utterly closed that no one can open. Jesus says here that even those doors can and they will be opened. The only question is, do we want it? Do we really want what Jesus has been teaching his people to pray for? Do we pray for it and ask for it with an impudence even? Do we actually desire the kingdom, his name, more than this ridiculous guy desires three loaves of bread? then do we ask for it with all of our heart more than this guy banging on a door and waking up an entire family. We so often pray for things just one or two times and conclude shortly after that perhaps our prayers are not heard or that prayer in and of itself just does not work. I was reading Philip Ryken's commentary about George Mueller. Uh, George Mueller was a director of an orphanage in England back in the 1800s. And read about him, Google him, and you will hear and see testimony of answered prayer after answered prayer. But George Mueller prayed for one of his friends to come to Christ for over 60 years. Six zero, not 16, 60 years. He says, never give up until the answer comes. He is not converted yet, but he will be. Now, that doesn't mean we presume on God's will. He's God, we're not. But as long as that guy has life and we have life, He has an opportunity to repent, and that will be the object of my prayer while I still have breath. And George Mueller died before that answer came. He prayed all the way till his death. And it was after George Mueller had already died that this man came to Christ for salvation. You know, many times, church family, it will be that our prayers will live longer and do more work than our own physical lives. How many of us stop at the first ask and don't break through much further than that? How many of us, when it appears that God is not listening, that we then therefore stop seeking? How many of us, when the door appears to be closed and sealed shut, I'm not going to knock more than a handful of times. The visual shows to us a promise from our Lord and Savior, the prayer of which the content is framed in the Lord's prayer. It's always going to be answered if we would just keep asking and seeking and knocking. Our Father's name will be hallowed. You can bet on it. His kingdom will come, and we pray towards these ends, and our prayers move it forward. Our sins, which are many, are continued to be forgiven in Christ. The people, more and more, are those of Christ, will be capable of the greatest kind of forgiveness of others. And he will sanctify us through and through by protecting us from temptation that would otherwise ruin us. We must be persistent. I think that sometimes God does not immediately answer our prayers for these right away. Because I think he wants to see if we even really want what we're asking for. I'm praying for that unbelieving child to be saved. A few weeks, a few years go by. Well, you know what, I'm gonna switch it up now and just pray for them to get a good job instead. Something changes. Pray for this sin, habitual, that's been terrorizing me for quite a few years. Well, it looks like that's not going anywhere. Switch it up and I'm just gonna pray to get my bid for a house accepted. Some sins take years of battle and prayer, even before you make one dent. Progressive sanctification can be so strenuous, but we all lose the battle immediately when we stop asking, seeking, and knocking. Every time you begin to lose heart in your prayer life, think of this ridiculously annoying neighbor. And somehow he's asking and begging for bread more so than we are for the glory of God in his saving power over our lives and the people around us. Maybe we should print out a little picture to frame above our little prayer nooks or on our fridges or at our desk of this annoying, impudent guy who won't leave his poor neighbor alone, knock, 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 and somehow still gets what he wants. And look at that guy before you pray daily, because we have a father in heaven who loves us as his children and is ready to listen, and who Jesus Christ promises will answer, that our asking and seeking and knocking will never, ever, not ever be in vain, brothers and sisters. God has promised to hear, and he has promised to answer, and he is longing to give, if we would but just believe. Now, side note before we move on, and this is why context is so important. This promise is not to, re- uh, to receive is not a promise that if you pray hard enough for Tesla, you're gonna get one or that if you ask and seek for high SAT scores, you are then guaranteed them, and that your career will take off, and that you're gonna score more points of the game, and that you're gonna catch a fish this big, and be the man or woman of your dreams who is actually somehow, for some strange reason, also into you and wants to sweep you off of your feet. Again, the content and material of our prayers are determined by the text before us, and the prayer relies, that we are to persist in, relies upon the right request and the right attitude. The manner, the persistence is determined by this text this morning. And so again, one of the reasons why I think Christ. People do not pray is because sometimes we do not believe in prayer. We're not convinced that it would ultimately amount to anything, and we don't say that out loud. But our actions proclaim that we actually don't believe it really works. And that's why Jesus gives us this visual and parallel of this ridiculous, unforgettable man who will not take no for an answer because we're in a much better position than he is and we're knocking on a much better door than he did. We continue in verse 11, and Jesus gives to us another visual. He says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? And sometimes we may not pray because we don't trust the answers that God gives us. I know for a lot of us, we've been praying and praying and praying, and it seems like our life gets more and more flipped upside down, and things happen that you can't make sense of. Maybe God rocks our boats a little too much, however subtly it may be, we can actually distrust his character. And to this, Jesus gives to us another picture of a father who, when his son wants to eat a fish, gives him a snake instead. You want some eggs? Here's a scorpion. Close your eyes and say, ah. And then it's like, aha. When I was in college uh, during a progressive dinner event, one of the preachers for our campus ministry, really approachable, uh, not that much older than we were, down to earth, friends with us, yada, yada, he went to the bathroom after the main part of the meal was finished and dessert was being prepared. And one particular student took a lump of wasabi and hid it inside a small bowl of green tea ice cream. And when the pastor came back, all eyes were on him and no one said a thing. And mid-conversation, he's talking. He lifts that spoon, shoves the thing in his mouth, and while he's talking, all of a sudden, the dots start to connect. His nostrils flare, his eyes get big, and we could see in his face that he was trying to process what it is that just happened to us. Only certain kinds of people do something like that. They toy with you, they mess with you. And yet sometimes we can think, however subtly, that God can sometimes be like that too. We pray and ask, and he gives us weird stuff we don't want. Puts us in situations that we think are unnecessarily uncomfortable. We often want status quo, predictable. And and to get uh, get serious about any kind of godliness, uh, about any kind of desired revival, sanctification, any devotion to God, to ministry, to evangelism of the people around us, is God gonna surprise us with something that we don't like? Now, some fathers, granted, definitely do play tricks on their kids. But ultimately, most fathers do want what is best for their children and work hard towards that end. The parents I know here will do pretty much anything for the good of their children, no doubt and rightfully so. And most fathers, by virtue of being older and more experienced in life within this world, they do know quite a bit more than their children know about what it is that is good for them. I'm trying talking to Brady, he's 13, he's really into lizards, blue-tongued skinks. He says that's gonna be his career, I said, you know what, Brayden, one day that might switch to girls. And he just doesn't believe me. He says, I'm gonna like blue tongue skinks for the rest of my life. And he doesn't really know what most adult men know, that the things you were into at seven and 10 and 13 often do not last forever. He doesn't know what we know. Our three-year-old daughter loves candy, will sometimes ask to put shiny red things in her mouth that resemble candy. Can I eat that? No, that thing is made of metal. If you knew what it was, you wouldn't even ask for it. If you knew what your dad knows, you would trust him more and more. But when we tell her to take it out of her mouth, she cries as if we wronged her. We tell Braden we're not gonna smuggle in an illegal reptile into the state. (laughs) $200,000 fine, three years of jail time. He thinks I'm being mean. Because often it is that the objects our hearts desire are actually not what's good for us. And therefore our Father is not gonna give them to us. And there are often things we're scared to pray towards as well because we think, if I pray for this, it's gonna bite us in the end when our God knows that it simply will not. And it is actually the best thing for each and every single one of us. The distance between a child's father and them is a lot smaller than the distance between us and our Father in heaven. And the amount of love that even the best earthly dads have for their children is next to nothing compared to the father who spared not his own son to save us. Sometimes you stare at your children, and you're shocked by how much you can love them. That's nothing compared to how much God the Father loves you. And he knows what's best for you, and he only gives good gifts to us. But even so, there are many ways in which we think we're smarter than him in the way that we ask for things. Give me this, not that, God. I'm giving you clear instructions, Lord. Grant me this over here, but not over there. And then when he doesn't give it, or it's not the right time, we cross our arms and sulk as if sometimes, somehow his wisdom is smaller than ours. Even in a world of imperfect, flawed, and wicked fathers, the general rule is that fathers want what is best for their children. They will not say, ah, I got a bite of fish for you, and shove a snake in your mouth instead. Parents don't want to arm their children and we have indwelling sin, we are still selfish in vain. Jesus is not pulling any punches here. He doesn't pull them because he wants that contrast to pop. You think you love your children? You're nothing compared to the Heavenly Father. He's perfect, you're sinful. Your love is flawed, his love is comprehensive, and if there's, not, if there's any doubt that somehow he is not forced, we need but just look upon the cross. Romans chapter 8, verse 31, 32. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? And he had just said, all things work for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purpose. Famous verse, Romans 8:28. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul writes like that there because it is very hard to interpret the things around us. It's very hard to see meaning in everything. We can't figure out why things go the way that they do. And when we can't figure it out, we assume that he doesn't know what he's doing either. And it's easy to distrust him because our vision is so short and we second guess him because our perspective is so limited. And the answer always, usually, is to look at Jesus Christ. The very reason why we can call the creator of the universe our own Father, is because united to Christ, we are brought into this very intimate relationship of love and of family. And the very reason why we can be so convinced of the Father's love is because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. In Romans 5, three chapters earlier in verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 10, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. There is nothing more precious to God the Father than God the Son, and yet He spares not His own Son so that He might have us, and not because we were all that amazing. We're the weak ones, the ungodly, the enemies, but He spares not His own Son so that He might have us because a Father's love for the unlovable is what is so amazing." And therefore, how can it be that he would do such a thing like put Jesus upon the cross in our place, have him die in our stead and pay our sin and erase our debt? Why would he really do all of that just so he could play some pranks on us and mess with us? There's no way. And so that when we pray as his children for the good in the Lord's prayer, you think he's gonna say, close your eyes and say, ah, uh, so that he could ha uh-huh, you? He loves you, brothers and sisters. He loves you more than you know. And you can ask and seek and knock persistently for the very things he tells you to, and it will always turn out for your good. And it will always turn out for his glory because God in his grace has made it that somehow his glory is wrapped up in our good and our highest joy is not in candy or in blue-tongued skinks, but it is in the praise of his own name. Now, admittedly, This is much easier to grasp in theory than it is when we can't see what he sees or knows what he knows. And the disciples whom Jesus is teaching in these verses are about to get a dosage of this concept in real time. I mean, these disciples, they left everything to follow Jesus, everything. They left family, they left home, they left parents, they left jobs. Some left very lucrative careers and it seemed at the time that this had been the right decision. We are seeing crowds, there are miracles, paralyzed guys are walking, we are hearing and believing in the coming kingdom of God and you know what, we wanna pray now. I think we're starting to piece this together. There's something about Jesus' relationship with the Father that that we wanna have and in their very limited perspective, this must be what it's all about. But in the very next text, Jesus is gonna get accused of being of Satan, not God. And in the upcoming passage, he's gonna be taken, arrested, stripped, beaten, mocked, and hung up on the cross. And the disciples are not gonna be able to make any kind of sense of it. Wait a second, something went wrong. This is definitely not good. Peter's gonna weep bitterly after denying his Jesus three different times, and for three days, his followers are gonna be utterly confused, and even after he rises from the grave. They still can't quite piece it together, even though he told them all of these things prior. All of the events that are upcoming are the disciples' worst nightmare. And yet, what if they got what they wanted? No cross. Rather than what they needed. What if the Father says, I'll give you what you want. No arrest. We would each and we would all still be dead in our sins, brothers and sisters. What the God in heaven, when hearing the jeers of Luke 23, 35, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, prove it, Jesus. What the Father, when hearing Luke 23, 39 of others on their crosses, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Everyone in that moment, with their perspective, thought it made more sense for Jesus to rip those nails from his wrist and come down from the cross and not die if God really hears us. And if he really wants to hark, good. Then that's what he's going to do, but he didn't do it, so he must not be all that good. Well, we know the rest of the story, do we not? We cannot always judge the Father's heart of love by what we see in our limited perspectives and what we desire in our immaturity relative to his eternality. We are called to trust in his love for us, which has been proven utterly in the giving of his Son. But ultimately it is that the Father does not only give the Son. Look at the last phrase of the last sentence. How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of Him? Ask Him, sorry. We have a Father who gives the Son. We have a Father who gives the Holy Spirit. And we have a Father who gives us Himself. That somehow this relationship to the triune God is truly the answer to everything our hearts really need. Do we understand this? The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He is the answer to everything we need. God does not ultimately give us stuff. He gives us Himself, and God will often not give us the stuff if that very stuff is what will distract us from knowing and enjoying him more and more. If the stuff is what kills us spiritually or can stunt our growth in him, well, he's gonna be a better father than that. Sometimes his greatest gift is in not giving us what we want when what we want is not in line with his love and what he wants. And so sometimes it is that we are scared to pray like Jesus asked us to pray because sometimes it is we prefer the stuff over the Lord who created it all, and yet it is even then that Jesus says, pray persistently, pray for the Holy Spirit, the one who guides us in all truth, leads us in conviction, illuminates the word, sanctifies our hearts, magnifies Christ in our lives. We pray for the Holy Spirit, and you're gonna get him in greater and greater fullness. Now, I don't know why... Peter is singled out to deny Jesus three times and not the other disciples. I don't know why some of us get cancer and others do not, why some of us stay single and others get married, why some have four children and others have four miscarriages. I don't know why God gives some this much cash and others are barely making it. I don't understand how some families are full of believers and there's such unity and other families. You are the only Christian in the entirety of the tree but you are gonna get into a weird place of discontentment if we're always looking around and comparing ourselves with others. At the end of the book of John, chapter 21 and verse 20, Peter just received a prophecy of sorts about the end of his own life. He's gonna die in a way that would glorify God. And then Peter looks at John and says, well, what about that guy? Lord, what about this man? And Jesus says to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. You don't look at other people. We look at our father. You know, my kids are always comparing themselves to others uh, in my treatment of them. Well, Braden gets to do this. What about me? Well, come Dane gets this, and I don't. Well, Brayden's 13, you're seven. You're Brayden, he's, he's trend. It doesn't. You guys get different stuff because you're different people. Stop comparing yourselves. Some people get rich. Some people stay Christian in doing so. Some people find the spouse of their dreams. This person, blah, blah, blah. And like every parent who's been parenting for a while knows, every kid needs specifically different things. They're not all the same. You guys are who you are, every single one of you. And we have a father who knows what is best just for you and what is best for you may not be what is best for your brother or your sister. I don't know why our lives are so drastically different from each other. I don't know it all, but God knows, and he is our Father, and he knows better than we do. He knows more than we do, and if we would but trust in him, I think we spend a lot more time in prayer than we currently do, a lot more time in communion. And so pray, ask, seek persistently, and trust in his heart. For you, church family, would you please close in prayer with me? Oh, Father, we ask that you would make us a people of prayer. Bring us close to you. Help us to be constant, persistent. Convince us, Lord, by the Spirit more and more of your love for us so that we will not doubt it even if everything around us screams screams at us to doubt it. Uh, Help us to trust in you even when you say no to things we want. Help us to believe in you even when there may be a delay in the answer. You are God, we are not. You are the Father, we are your children. Give us the best things even when we don't know what they are for us. And would you glorify your Son in our lives and give us more of the Holy Spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.